Hi, good morning, everyone. We're going to read this morning from Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. So please do open your Bible and follow along. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire, mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of the great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like this power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months 
is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire of smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we come to you this morning, you would fill us with awe and wonder for who you are. We do thank you that we know you're a God of love, and yet we're so aware that you are just. And so, Father, we come so, so thankful this morning that you do not treat us as we deserve. We thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Father, we thank you that even as we remember this morning, many who have lost lives or been left changed forever as they sacrifice for others. We so, so thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and how he has bought for us a freedom that cannot be taken away from us. Father, I pray that ultimately this morning we rest in that. And Father, we just really pray for each of us sitting here this morning, Lord. We're thankful that you know exactly what this week has brought for each one. We thank you that for your constant presence with us and in us. And Father, I pray that you do speak to each of us this morning by your spirit with exactly what we need to hear from you today. Father, for those who are hurting, I pray comfort. And we pray especially this morning, Lord, for the family of that little boy who is tragically killed on the farm, Lord. We can only ask, Lord, that you put your arms around them and bring comfort to them. So, Lord, we just ask now that by your spirit you come and help us and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning. 
read chapters 8 and 9 for this morning. Phew, good. You needed to uh, <laughs> uh, get your head around this stuff that we're going to be looking at this morning. But I want to ask you a question uh, before we get, get into the text this morning. The question is this. How do you view God? How do you view God? Uh, A.W. Tozer said this. What comes into your minds when we think about what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis, in a different way, said this. I read in a periodical the other day that the most fundamental thing is how we think about God. There's two of the greats, we would say, coming up to the same conclusion. John Calvin, uh, in the beginning of the, the Calvin's Institutes, says the most important thing about us is how we view ourselves and how we view God. And if that's the case, when we come to passages like chapter 8 and 9 of Revelation, how do we view God? What is our view of Him? What do we think of Him? Sam Storms has been really helpful to me in, in this series so far. Sam says there's a good test that we can apply to ourselves when it comes to especially passages like this, but also how we view God. He says this, let me put it this way. There is a test that each of us can apply to ourselves to determine whether or not we have a biblical view of God. If you want to know what God thinks of his own glory and honor and whether or not you share his perspective, all that is needed is for you to ask yourself this question. When I read the devastating judgments in the book of Revelation, that is to say, when I read the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments, do I think God is overreacting? Do I think God is overreacting? Do I find myself saying these judgments are unwarranted, they're extreme, they exceed the boundaries of what is just and right? The seal trumpet or the, the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments are excessive and unjustified. Storm says, if that is our reaction, then I suggest we need to revisit and reevaluate not only our view of God, but also our view of the horror and wickedness of human sin. What I'm suggesting is simply this. If you cringe when you read about the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, it can only be due to one thing. You have too high a view of humanity and too low a view of God. How do you think about God? Chapter 8 opens up with the opening of the seventh seal. If you can remember last time we looked at chapter 7 and we said there was like an interlude between the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal. At the, at the beginning of chapter 8 we find the opening of the seventh seal. And what I want to do today is I'll, I'll come back to this. Let me just read it now. I'll come back to it in a, in a moment or two, but let me read it to us. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, that's important. Remember that, and I'll come back to that in a moment or two. But what I want to do is start off this morning thinking about these trumpets. So there's a pattern emerging in Revelation. 
And the pattern is this. And let me caveat, I need to caveat these things with uh, that all of these things are my opinion and you have brains, all right? I know some of you don't believe that, but you do. And I know I don't believe it about some of you, but you do. Uh, You have brains and you're able to think and you're able to come to your own conclusions and you're able to read your own books and you're able to do all those things. Dead on. The interpretation of Revelation is secondary, if not tertiary, at best. All right? We clear? These are no reason to have disagreements. Everybody's able to have their opinion, hold their opinion, still be a member of Cornerstone Church, and I will still love you, although you're wrong. All right? (laughs) Simple. That's how much love I have for you. Even though you're wrong, I love you. Right? My opinion. My opinion. Right, let's get into this. Trumpets. The trumpets are significant. So what we have is this pattern emerging. We have three sets of seven. Three sets of judgments. The the first were the seal judgments, the seven seals. Then we have the seven trumpets, and then we have the seven bowls. Now, in my opinion, what those three sevens are doing is what I talked about last week, is they are telling the story of history. They are outlining how things have went from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, and then we see the final judgment. That's what we see. Three sevens are setting out from different angles. Remember I talked about the the cameras at the football pitches, and and some give different perspectives. That's what they are doing. Now, in saying that, you you will notice today, and you may notice uh, definitely in the bold judgments, they are increasing in intensity. They're getting worse. But that is simply giving us three different perspectives. The trumpets here are significant in the fact that trumpets have always played an important role throughout Scripture in in, in the purposes of God. When Israel, if, if you know the Old Testament, when Israel laid claim to the Promised Land, the priests were instructed to what? Blow the trumpets of war seven times for seven days. On the final day, Israel encircled Jericho seven times, and when the seven trumpets blew after the seventh trip around the city, what happened? The walls fell. Trumpets are significant. We also see in the Old Testament that the feasts in Israel were heralded by trumpets with a blast of the trumpets, Leviticus 23. Trumpets were blown to declare Solomon's ascension to the throne in 1 Kings, and the prophet Joel describes the blowing of trumpets in preparation for God's coming in judgment. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on a holy mountain, for the day of the Lord is coming. Joel 2. Israel's trumpets signify the coming of the Lord to wage warfare on the nation's behalf. You can't help but notice the similarities here and the imagery of the Old Testament. But there is something to notice when we, when we look at these trumpets being blown and the judgment and the wrath that they bring, there is something to be, to be, to be noticed. You'll notice it's a third every time. A third is to be destroyed, or a, th- a third of this is to happen, or a third of something else to happen. And what that signifies for us is that these judgments are not complete. They are partial in their devastation. So in 8-8, a third of the sea. 8-7, a third of the earth is affected. In 8-8, a third of the sea became blood. 8-10, a third of the rivers. And the springs of water were judged. 
8, 12, it's a third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. This repetition of a third is important because it is signifying that these are partial. They are preliminary in nature. They're like a warm-up act to what is to come. As one commentator put it, the trumpets are, not, are sounding not doom but warning. The majority of mankind are allowed to survive being shown God's wrath against sin. Given the chance to repent. Thus at one time in human history the judgment of God may be extensive and severe while at another time limited and partial. These trumpets are warnings. They are warnings given to people to repent. Now when we think about that, when we think about the question at the beginning, we think what we think of God, surely that leads us to conclude that God is patient with his people. He warns us over and over again. How many of us know people in our lives I certainly do. How many people we know in our lives, when you, when you say, 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 for example, they have an illness or something goes wrong, and you say to yourself, well, surely that's a warning. Surely they'll repent. Surely they'll come to Christ. Well, what we see at the end of chapter 9, actually, and we'll, we'll speak about it at the time, are two of the most terrifying verses to me in Scripture. The people don't repent. People don't heed the warning. God is gracious. Even in his discipline, he's gracious. The scripture tells us God disciplines those whom he loves. So what we have in these, these trumpets are warnings. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. Turn. Repent. I... I, I listened to the thing the other day, and it was it's funny. Uh, you don't think of things. Sometimes in the church, we're so used to Christian cliches, and we're so used to like just it being the way it was. And, and you look at the message, you look at the gospel message going forth in the New Testament, right? Nowhere will you find, nowhere will you find the, 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 the tool of evangelism being give Jesus a try. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find the tool of evangelism come to ask Jesus into your heart. What you find in the New Testament, even as far back as John the Baptist, the message is this and the message is clear. Repent. Repent. Turn from sin. Come to Jesus. Think of Acts when Peter gets up and preaches the first sermon after Pentecost. What's the message? The message is, this is the Christ whom you crucified. They're cut to the heart. What do they ask? What, what, what must we do to be saved? What's the answer? Repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's not fluffy, ask Jesus into your heart. Repent. Turn. God is gracious in his warnings. And he's also gracious in his warnings with us believers. 
How many times are we as followers of Christ walking in a path that we know is not right and graciously God comes and tells us no? Repent, turn. What we'll see later is that he could wipe us out like that. But he doesn't. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is gracious towards us. Let me ask you, are you walking on a road this morning that you know is not right and God is speaking to you to repent and turn? Is there sin in your life that you know you're committing, that you shouldn't be committing, that you know you are? God is speaking to you, graciously asking you to repent. Do it. Do it. One of the greatest judgments of God is allowing us to do what we want to do. Repent. He's gracious in his warnings. And so these trumpets come to warn. And so let's get into these four trumpets then, the first four trumpets, because then there's a, there's a bit of a shift after the, four, the, the fourth one. Uh, so let's look at them together. As we see the, the, the judgments and the, fourth, the four trumpets being blown, uh, it is very clear there's very clear parallels. The best, one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is through other Scripture. And there's very clear parallels here between what's going on in Revelation 8 and 9 and somewhere else that you may be familiar with in the Bible. Can anybody think of where that might be? You should know because we did a series in it not that long ago. Exodus. The plagues. So what we look at here is very familiar to us. Let's look at the first trumpet. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. And what we see here is very similar to what happens in Exodus. God rained, you remember the seventh plague, God rained down in the land of Egypt hail and fire. And so we, we, can, we can reference that and look at that and see what that's like back in Exodus. God did this. The second is an interesting one. The second angel blew his trumpet uh, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures and the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Right. Something like a great mountain. The word like in Revelation 8 and 9 are really significant. They, mean, they, they don't mean they are the thing. They mean they are like the thing. Right? So, I'll give you an example, a real life example. Some of you know I have a dog. Right? Some of you know now I have two dogs. Right? And Bonnie, our first dog, is like a horse. Alright? She is like a horse. Fergie, our second dog, will be even more like a horse. All right? But they are not horses. They are like horses. All right? So you see the picture here in Revelation. John says it was like such and such. It was like this. It was like that. It does not mean that it was literally a horse. 
All right? You with me? See that? Right. The, the word like is used a lot. Now, it was like a mountain. Right? The second blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. What John is using here is, again, is he using hyperbole, uh, this prophetic hyperbole, to show what the psalmist would actually say in Psalm 46, the same thing. The psalmist says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. What's the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying, he's using this descriptively to say, turmoil. When, there, when the earth is in turmoil, when things are shaken up, this is what it's like. We will not be moved. There is no one who would believe that the psalmist is describing multiple mountains literally slipping into the sea. It's a proverbial expression of times of devastation and turmoil among the nations. Also, mountain in Revelation. A mountain in Revelation is often synonymous with an earthly kingdom. And so what this could be signifying, what this could be signifying is the destruction or the crumbling of earthly kingdoms. That's the second. The third. The third again gives the, just like one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, the third trumpet, the blowing of the third trumpet here appears to signify famine of some sort. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. The great star that fell from heaven is supposed to be, some interpreters would say, an angel blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. That literally just means bitter. It means bitter. Wormwood means bitter. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, bitter. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Right. So what's happening here is famine. Now, again, we have a, a small problem for those who would read the book literally in the fact that a star falls from heaven and it affects one star falls from heaven and it affects a third of all the rivers on, on streams of the earth. Not possible. The more likely interpretation is that this is an angel and he had went round and affected these different water sources. That's what we see. The fourth trumpet. Strikingly similar to the sixth seal in Revelation 6. The only difference being uh, this one is partial and the, the, the seal in, Re in Revelation 6 was uh, final, complete. This judgment also seems to reflect the ninth plague in, in Exodus in the land of Egypt. Again, symbolic. Uh, and so what we see here in these these four, the first four blowing of the trumpets is judgment, partial judgment on the earth. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck out darkness and a third of the moon and the stars and a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. So what we have in these first four blowing of the trumpets is judgment on the earth. Then there's a shift. Then there's a shift. Let's look at what that is. At the end of chapter 8, it says this, Then I looked, and behold, then I looked, and behold, an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, 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 
Woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets three in, that the three angels are about to blow. What we have here is a change in perspective. This eagle that is often synonymous in the Old Testament with judgment is crying out this warning on those who dwell on the earth. And the statement, those who dwell on the earth in Revelation, means sinners, unrepentant sinners. So what will come next is for unrepentant sinners. Right. If what I say is true, that what comes next and the woes that are to come in chapter 9 and the judgment that is to come are for unbelievers at the time of final judgment, what we could do this morning is spend our time getting bogged down in the detail of chapter 9 about what this means and about what that means and about what something else means. Because here's the reality. What we see in chapter 9, and I don't know if there is any Father Ted fans in the room. Are there any Father Ted fans? Ben, I knew that. That was good. Right. You're allowed to like it. It's a show that we're allowed to like. All right. We're allowed to like it. So in Father Ted, there is one episode where uh, Dougal and Ted are having a conversation. And Dougal talks about uh, the, the circus is coming to town and he wants to go. And the reason he wants to go is because there's a spider baby, right? I find this a whole lot funnier than you're finding it, by the way. But uh, spider baby coming. And Ted says, really, there's a spider baby coming? And, and Dougal goes, yes, it has the body of a spider and the head of a baby. And then Ted gets this picture out of a, of a human head. And he says, Can you, did you remember the wee conversation we had, Dougal, about dreams versus reality? All right? Dreams versus reality. This is the Apostle John's Dougal moment. All right? What we have in here are things that we have no comprehension of what they look like. Right? And we can get into the minutiae of like. They're like this. They're like something else. And you see when I see like repeated, I'm like, if it's like something, then yes, I get your point, but I'm not exactly sure what it looks like. Because it's like something. And this is what we see over and over again. And so in chapter 9, we could get bogged down in the detail of what things mean, but I don't want to do that. And I don't want you to do it. Right? I don't want you to do it. I want to just cover a couple of things that I think, and then we'll move on. Right? There's a couple of things I want to point out here. Uh, in chapter 9 that I think are significant that we sort of do need to know and then we'll move on. The fifth angel, this woe, this, uh, this, this eagle comes, pronounces these woes, this is going to happen to those who dwell on the earth, unrepentant sinners. This is what happens. And I, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key. Right, okay, we need to stop, pause. He was given the key. Who gives the key? Where does he get it? Does he go and look for it? Who gives it to him? God. Passive voice used in Revelation over and over again. He was given. He was allowed. He was. It's God. All right. He was given the key by God. 
And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. And then a smoke came, out from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given the power, like the power of scorpions. There was a real fear of scorpions at the time. There still is. Uh, but uh, there was a genuine real fear of scorpions and what they could do. So the imagery here was, this is dangerous. This is not good. Right? And they were given the power, like scorpions. Uh, they were told not to harm the grass or the earth or the green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And then flipping over to uh, verse 11. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And Greek he is called Apollyon. What we, the, the only possible conclusion that I can come to here, what this bottomless pit is, is hell. The shaft of the bottomless pit this angel has been given the key to release all the power of hell. They have a king, his name is Satan. A fallen angel, that's what we're told, they have a king. He's an angel of the bottomless pit. His name is, in Hebrew, is Abaddon. Now, I could make a joke there, because he is Abaddon, but I'll not. And in Greek, he's called Apollyon. That's all we can conclude from this, I think, that this is hell and it is being unleashed on those who have not repented. It is being unleashed. And what comes next is what that unleashing looks like. And it is horrific. It is horrific. But I don't want us to miss the wood for the trees here. As I say, these woes are to those who dwell on the earth, unrepentant sinners. As I say, there are close parallels between what happens here in Revelation and in Exodus. The Egyptian plagues. God tells us why he sent the plagues. God, speaking in Exodus, says this. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land, Pharaoh will not listen to me. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, my children, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And Egypt, Egyptians shall know that I am God when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God sent the plagues so that his enemies would know that he is God. Those who dwell on the earth and who are unrepentant, who do not turn from their sins, think just pridefully several, one of several things. One, they either think there is no God, which is a massive mistake, Two, they think there is a God, but he's not loving and not kind and doesn't want anything to do with him. Another massive mistake. Or the third is, there is a God, but I'm just, I'm all right, I'm good, I'm, I'm going to be able to handle this myself. A third massive mistake. All which point out to the pride of humanity. Now, 
rejecting God, rejecting his offer of salvation, is the greatest act of treason that has ever been committed. What does treason mean? Treason literally means when you betray or try to kill the sovereign. And those who reject God, reject the offer of salvation in Christ Jesus, they are committing the greatest, greatest treason that has ever been committed. Psalm 14 says, the fool in his heart says there is no God. And what's devastating about these verses and what's devastating about the judgment to come is that these, these people have saw it. They've saw the warnings. They've saw God's judgment. They've saw God's wrath. And they refuse to come to him in their pride. Like as I say, we all know people who have been given warning after warning after warning of their own mortality, and yet they refuse. Prideful, sinful human beings. Now, let me ask you a question at this point. When we consider how we think about God, and when we think about the wrath that is to come upon people who are unrepentant, do you think, do I think God is right and true in his judgment? If we don't, we think way too highly of ourselves and know we're nearly high enough of God our creator. The wrath that is to come will be fully justified to those who dwell on the earth and are unrepentant. But what does this tell us about God? It tells us about those who dwell on the earth that it is justified and it is right. What does it tell us about God? What do these trumpet judgments display about God? Well, it tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us he's patient and that these are only partial that he is giving warnings, that he is good, that he is compassionate, that he is gracious and he is kind. But the second thing, that te- second thing it tells us is this. God does them. God does them. Listen to what he says again in Exodus 9. I will send my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. Sometimes I think we get like Old Testament amnesia where we forget the God of the Old Testament. This is what he does. You and your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Folks, here's the reality. If we don't sit in here this morning and we don't know and we don't deeply know in our own hearts that what we deserve, what we, what we rightfully should get is to be struck off from the earth, to, to, to be annihilated by the king of creation. If we don't know that, we can never understand the grace of God. Exodus 6 or Exodus 9, 16 says, to display power so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What if, what if suffering comes into our lives? What if trial comes into our lives? What, what if just hardship comes into our lives? What do we tend to do with that? 
Well, the first thing we tend to do is go, well, probably Satan done it. Or it's someone else's fault. Or something else has led, blah, 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 blah. Could it be that with the God of the Bible, we look at the God of the Bible and say, God did it. God did it. Because here's the reality. If we look at who gives the key to the, the shaft of the bottomless pit, who does it? God. Satan and his demons only have the power that God gives them the authority to have. Look at Job. Satan was only allowed to do what God allowed him to do. And it's the same on the earth today. Either God is sovereign over all things or he's sovereign over nothing. And he's sovereign over Satan and he's sovereign over the demons. They only are allowed to do what God allows them to do. God does these things. So when we think about this judgment, when we think about who God is rightfully, how does this affect us? What effect does this have on us? How should they, this affect us? And this is where I want to begin, or start to go back to where we were at the start. How do we view God? A liberal scholar, former Episcopalian bishop, writes this. Can we really worship the God found in the Bible who sent the angel of death across the land of Egypt to murder the firstborn males in every Egyptian household? Good question. Good question. Let me ask you a question this morning. Can you worship that God? Is that the God that you're worshiping? If we do not have a right view of God, we cannot worship him correctly. This is what being committed to expository preaching of a Bible does. Not every Sunday are we going to be in here and we're going to think to ourselves, this is a walk in the park when you come to chapters like 8 and 9 of Revelation. This is hell, judgment, wrath. And it is deserved. It is deserved. Let me go back to the beginning of chapter 8. I said I would circle around again. So what we have at the beginning of chapter 8 is the opening of the seventh seal at the end of the final judgment. And this is what it says. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence. Silence. For some things, an appropriate response is cheering, roaring, shouting, laughing. For the events that unfold in the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments, the only appropriate response is silence. 
Silence at the awe of God. Silence at the wrath of God. Silence at the sovereignty of God. Silence at the severity of God. Silence at being overawed of God's hatred of sin. Habakkuk writes in Habakkuk 2.20, The Lord in his holy temple let all the earth keep silent before him. The only right response to the judgment of God is temporary silence. There will be a time when that silence stops and heaven breaks forth again in worship. I don't know if you've ever watched The Passion of Christ. I don't know what your views are on it. I don't know. But there's a moment in that film when Jesus is approaching the cross and on the cross, and literally, you can't say a thing. The only appropriate response is silence to the king of the universe being slain for our sin. And it's the same here. The reality of verse 20 and 22 of, of chapter 9 are terrifying. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshipping demons and idols or gold or silver or bronze or stu- of stone or, or on wood, which cannot hear or see or, or cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immorality or their, th- or their thefts. Folks, that is the ultimate pride and just demonstration of the depravity of man. To see all of that and still reject Christ. Folks, that should bring us to tears. And when we sit in here this morning and we think of these judgments that are come to those who are unrepentant, I said in the first service and I said, I said again, I don't understand when I read Revelation 8 and 9, I don't understand why I don't spend my days in the streets of Rothrylland pleading with people to come to Jesus. I don't get it. I don't understand my own heart. I don't understand my own motives. I don't understand why I don't do it. I don't understand why I don't plead with the ones that I love, the ones that I know, my friends, my family. I don't understand why I don't plead with them day and night to come to Jesus, considering what we read in our chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation. Here's the thing. Theology is brilliant, isn't it? Getting into the minutiae of, you know, it looks like a locust or it looks like a horse with a reindeer on top of it and something else. I don't know. Brilliant, isn't it? Is that going to save people? Is that going to see people one for Christ? No. Getting out there and telling people the simple gospel, repent of sin, turn to Christ. That is what will see people saved in this town and in this area and in your life. 
I'm praying, folks, I'm praying for me and I'm praying for you. I'm praying that these texts will drive us out of here to do two things. One, get on our knees and pray that people will be saved. Two, that we would go from here and we would open our mouths and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners from this, that that would come out. It's good news. It's good news we're going back to one service, isn't it? Anybody else think it's good news? I think it's good news. I can't wait to work two again. And then three. Four. Church plant, Hilltown. Church plant, somewhere else. Because our God is much bigger than this. And our God is much bigger than you and your opinion. He has got a big vision for this place. You in? You in? Let's go. Let's go. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ. But Father, I just pray that you'll wise us up. Genuinely, I just pray that you would wise us up to see the need that is around us for people to come to Jesus. And Father, now as we, as we come to communion and think about Christ and think about his grace, Father, help us to worship. Help us to worship like those who have been saved from what we've just read about. All praise to Jesus. All praise to Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.